0: All right, Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through 33. As the Lord, of course, is meeting with Abraham, and they're under the tree, and they have, he has served them. And then the conversation picks up in verse 9. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken and aged, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure, there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure, there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, "O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall 30 be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, "O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure... Ten be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people say, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for setting this wonderful text before us, that we might find thy grace and thy mercy therein. We pray thee, Lord, open it unto us, that we might learn these wonderful truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, As a review, I wanted to remind us last week that when this scene opens up here in the beginning of Genesis chapter 18, that Abraham runs to the Lord when the Lord presents himself before Abraham, I should say, appeared unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre. Um, We appreciate that Abraham ran to him. We remind ourselves that Abraham was justified by grace before circumcision and I want us to also plant this seed in your head about Lot. There's no evidence anywhere in the scripture that would even remotely suggest that Lot himself was circumcised in the flesh. So I want to put that issue of circumcision in the flesh um, to bed. Lot was not circumcised, and yet we're going to see how the Lord deals with Lot. So again, Romans chapter 4 reminds us that Abraham was circumcised um, after he was justified. He was justified first, and then he was circumcised. We also saw last week that God changed Abraham's name, and so it was symbolic of him becoming a partaker of the divine nature, that Jehovah took the H that's in the middle of Jehovah and put it in the middle of Abraham's name, and he appended it to the end of Sarah's name, indicative of like the Holy Ghost being breathed upon them, which we saw from John chapter 20, verse 22, where the Lord breathes on his disciples and says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. So we saw that this is symbolic of receiving uh, something of the divine nature. We become partakers of the divine nature when we're baptized by the Holy Ghost and indwelled by God. So he runs to Jehovah, and that sets before us a wonderful principle that's articulated in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, where it says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God, and we see Abraham coming to God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And he was told by Abraham, God God told Abraham that he was his exceeding great reward. So Abraham obviously believed that. We know that in in chapter 15 that he believed the Lord and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And so we see that principle run itself uh, to be true in Abraham's life, that he comes to um, God because he believes that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So this, we know, is contrary to natural man to actually seek out God. Man cannot and will not come to God absent God giving him (laughs) grace and faith to do so. The Lord says of himself when he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees in John chapter 6 that no man can come unto me unless the Father which hath sent me draw them. And so that is true. In Romans 3.11, it says that there is none that understandeth and there is none that seeketh after God. No man can come to God and no man will come to God unless God draws them to himself. Carnal mind is at enmity with God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be, meaning that God will not willfully submit himself to the rules that God has set before him. He will not obey God. And so God has to do a work of grace in their heart to draw them to himself plant in them, take out that stony heart, and put in a heart of flesh that they will then obey him. Um, Abraham, we are told three times in Scripture that he is a friend of God, which, again, in and of itself contradicts the nature of man, because man, again, is at enmity with God. So clearly God has done something in Abraham's life to bridge that gap between himself and Abraham, which God does to everyone that he is determined to save. He bridges that gap, he comes to them, he draws them, and he places something of himself in them. And God does this knowing what is in the heart of all men. He knows their nature, he knows their characteristics, and yet he bridges that gap and would call them friends. So moving forward in this section, I want us to appreciate that God knows what's in the hearts of all men at all times, everywhere on the planet, at every point in time. Verses 20 and verses 21, which we'll get to later, contain anthropomorphic language, which if you read in isolation, you might be tempted to believe otherwise, that God doesn't know what's going on, and he's got to make a personal visit, knock on somebody's door, and kind of ask them what is happening. Um, You saw that at the uh, Tower of Babel where the Lord came down to go see what they were actually building, what was going on here. But again, that's anthropomorphic language. God does not need to do that. Even in this section here in Genesis 17 and 18, we see that God knows what's going on in people's hearts. Remember back in Genesis chapter 17, when God was having a conversation with Abraham in verse 16, he says that Sarah is going to have a son. What does Abraham do in verse 17? Scripture says that he fell on his face and he said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old, and shall Sarah that is 80 years old bear? He fell on his face, he laughed, and he said this in his heart. God graciously reiterates the promise to him in verse 19, and he says, Yes, you're, you're going to have a heart. God is not confrontational, he's not argumentative with him. He says, This is what is going to happen. He did that, of course, knowing what Abraham said in his heart. In verse 10 of Genesis chapter 18, God tells Abraham again. In Sarah's hearing, for both of their benefits, he's now speaking to both of them. Sarah's in the tent behind Abraham. She's behind the tent door, and he's saying it so Sarah can hear it, but he's also telling Abraham again that they are going to have a son, that he's going to give them a son. So we appreciate here that they are definitely one flesh. Um, He says, I will certainly return unto thee, speaking to Abraham, according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. Principle set forth here for God to come to this uh, husband is for God to come to the wife. They are one flesh and that's certainly principle, that principle is certainly true in the church. All that we have, we have in Christ. All of the promises in him are yea and in him amen and we have those by virtue of our relationship with Christ. The fact that we are his uh, bride, his wife, we are both troth to him gives us grants us all of the wonderful things that are available to the Son, are available to us. We share the Father's love that he has for his Son. As he loves his Son, so too does he love us. The Lord says that in John chapter 17. We are in him and he is in us. We are united with him. Um, We have an eternality of union with Christ, betrothed to him, because we know that in the context of marriage, what God hath joined, let not man put asunder. He has joined us, the Father has joined us with his Son, and none shall place, put that asunder. And the Lord says that, none shall pluck my people out of my hands. And so you see that also in the principle of marriage set before us. So again, Abraham and Sarah are one flesh. When God comes to one, it's always come to both. And so in his graciousness, he reiterates the promise again to um, Abraham. And when he's doing that, in verse 12 of Genesis 18, we appreciate that it says, Sarah laughed in her heart. Verse 13, God asked the question, why did Sarah laugh? And I wonder what Abraham's thoughts were with that, because he might have been thinking, you know, listen, we've had this conversation before. I told you what God had said to me, and yet she laughed. So I wonder how convincing he was in terms of what he shared with Sarah. I can appreciate Sarah Sarah maybe doubting that promise, um, but I The fact that she would laugh uh, is a bit interesting because I would have hoped that that was not the first time she heard that she was going to have um, a son. And yet she laughs in her heart, and God tells us that twice, that she laughed in her heart. The point being here, I want us to appreciate before we move into this next section, is that God knows what's in our hearts. He knew what was in Abraham's heart, and he knows what's in Sarah's heart. And so we want to set this truth before us before we read about God going down to Sodom to see what's going on down there. In verse 17, uh, verse 16, we see that the men rose up, that would be the Lord raises up, and they looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to, see, to bring them on their way. So in verse 17, the Lord asks a question, shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I'm going to do? As friends of God, we appreciate, and this is review again, that he reveals to us what he does, what he's going to do, and he reveals to us what he might have us to do. Um, this he does, as I mentioned last week, through prayer and Bible study, and he also does it through speaking through um your saints, uh, um, your compatriots in the Lord, your, your fellow saints. That's the word I want to use. He does it also by speaking through your fellow saints. Occasionally, God will put something on your heart that maybe your brother or sister needs to hear, and you don't even know that, but God has put something on your heart and given you a heart to share something with your brother or sister in Christ, something comforting, something uplifting, or some pearl of godly wisdom that you share with them that brings them a measure of comfort. They might tell you later, you know, I'm so glad you said that to me because I was concerned about this, that, or the other thing. God works through his saints, and so we appreciate that the saints are uh, encouraged to gather together for that very reason, that we can uplift one another and uh, provoke one another to love and to good works. Um, And this, as I said, you don't even know sometimes that you're doing that, but God is working in you to um, bring some um, pearl of wisdom to your fellow saint. Whatever God does, however he works through us, we know that he is always doing it for our good. And that's true, certainly, what's going to happen here in Sodom and Gomorrah and the coast roundabout. It is always for our good. Whatever God is going to do when he goes down to Sodom is for Abraham and for Sarah's good. It is for Lot's good, and it is for your good, and it is for my good. Whatever he's going to do down there will work individually and collectively for the good of all the elect, all that have loved God and are called according to his purpose all throughout history. All throughout history, it works for our good. Now, having the whole of the Bible before us here, we have that advantage to know what he's going to do. He doesn't tell Abraham what he's going to do, but we know what he's going to do. In Second Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, I'm going to read that now because it tells us what God did, and it tells us why he did it. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6, we read, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, the preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, Verse 6 now, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, just meaning he was justified, not like he's the only one, but and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. That's an understatement. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations even if he has to nuke the entire city, but we'll get to that later. But specifically here, he says that he is going to make them an example unto those that after, that after should live ungodly. He left those cities as an example. So God is going to destroy all the people and the cities down there in that area. He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. Now, I want you to recall back in Genesis chapter 13, this is verses 11 through 13, but in verse 13 in particular, the Lord tells us about Sodom. It says, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. That's in Genesis chapter 13. That they're before the Lord exceedingly means that they are sinners in his face, just like people are today. We have Pride Month. Pride parades, parade flag. We have drag queens openly parading their lascivious behavior in God's face. It's absolutely audacious what people are doing today. They don't even bother to do it in secret anymore. Keep in mind that flags are banners about which people identify and rally themselves as belonging to a particular group or cause. Every country has its flag. As a political body of governance, when the United States of America and the state of California fly the pride flag, they are identifying themselves with the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, which must lead to their condemnation according to the example left by God in the forms of heaps of ash found on the western shores of the aptly named Dead Sea. This country has nothing to look forward to but the judgment of God when they rally themselves around a flag like that because God has said He has made them an example of people that after would live ungodly. What happened there, we should expect to happen here when God brings His judgment. Romans chapter 1, as you know, chronicles the descent of man into sin when God leaves them over to themselves homosexuality in particular, for which God says they are worthy of death. It is the just recompense of their reward. That's what language God uses to describe um, what is due them. In Genesis 19, we know um, that God is going to render his judgment. Acts chapter 15, verse 18 says, quote, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God knows exactly what he's going to do when he goes down to Sodom to see what's going on there. Again, that's simply anthropomorphic language. We've already established with respect to both Abraham and Sarah that our omniscient God knows what's in men's hearts. Jeremiah chapter 17, the Lord sets that very clearly before us in verses 9 and 10. He says, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked." Then he asks the question, Who can know it? And he answers the question. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. He asks the questions. Who can know the heart? And then he answers the question. He knows the heart and he judges people according to what's going on in their heart. Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13, something very similar speaks about the word of God, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He's speaking of Christ himself, who is the word of God. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything going on in Sodom and Gomorrah is naked and open unto his eyes. They will have to deal with God, as indeed all men do. Not only does God know what's in men's hearts, he knows why it's in their hearts, and he judges them for it. He judges people for their deeds, the things that they do. He judges them for their thoughts, whatever things they might think. And he judges them based on their motivations, why they are doing things. And he judges them based on all the evil fruit that it bears. God has already told us again in Genesis 13, 13, that these people are wicked And sinners before him exceedingly. He knows what's going on down there. He knows what is in every single person's heart down there. Verses 20 and 21 is written for us that we might appreciate that God is patient and he is long suffering. Again, back in Genesis 13, that was 20 years ago, plus or minus some, we are told that the Sodomites are wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. 20 years ago, they were doing these kind of things. God does not rush into condemnation. Remember back uh, up in uh, John chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord says, he sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That would be the world of elect. So I want you to appreciate this. I'm going to say this twice. God is not going down to Sodom to see if he knows what is true is true. He's not going down to Sodom to see if what he knows to be true is true. Of course it's true. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's not even going down there to destroy it. He does not need to do that. He can destroy it from where he is up on the mountains, or he can destroy it from heaven above. He spoke everything into existence. He can speak it all out of existence. He does not need to be there. But he is going down there to teach us a lesson in mercy. He's going down there to pull Lot out. Speaking of the elect, God says in 1 Thessalonians 5:9, For God hath not appointed us, or Lot, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. He has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation. That includes Lot. Just like on the last day, the great day of the Lord when he comes, speaks of this in Jude chapter 1, The Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's going to pull his saints out before he does that. The Lord says this before us in Matthew chapter 24, likening the the end of the age to the time of Sodom and Gomorrah when the Lord rained judgment on that and liken it also to the days of Noah. In Matthew 24, verse 40 and 42, he says, Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not at what hour your Lord doth come. He's going to remove his saints on the last day, on the last day. Don't be thinking seven years prior, but he's going to be removing his elect when he comes on the last day before he reigns judgment on the world here. So what we should appreciate here also in what's written in verses 21 and 22 of Genesis 18 is that the Lord is slow to anger slow to wrath, and that he indeed has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Although God does not tell Abraham what he's going to do, Abraham immediately petitions the Lord for the benefit of the righteous. He's behaving like Christ here. He's acting like the one mediator between God and men. This section, we can see as we read through it, that it's likened unto prayer. And that's how the commentators view it. He's petitioning the Lord as we might in prayer. Here we see that Abraham petitions God for the benefit of others. And this is true also of our mediator, Christ, who petitions the Lord for our benefit. He mediates between us and, and God. As priests of God, we, uh, the elect which are remain here until the Lord comes, We pray for our saved and our unsaved family and acquaintances. We have many things that we pray for. The Lord tells us to pray for our enemies, those that persecute us and despitefully use us. We are to pray for governors and political rulers. So we pray for a number of people. And so that certainly is set before Abraham, but he's not praying for all of those things. He's praying for Lot. Here, Abraham prays that the righteous will not be destroyed with the wicked and that for their benefit, for the benefit of the righteous, the city would not be destroyed. God has not told Abraham what he is going to do. Having a relationship with God and knowing that God is the possessor of heaven and earth, which he stated back in Genesis 14, and he knows something of God's righteousness because it's been imputed to him, and he's a partaker of the divine nature, he knows that Sodom warrants God's judgment and Destruction. God's law is written on the hearts of all men. Everyone knows that it is wrong to do what they are doing down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. That their consciences fail to convict them is because their consciences are seared. Modern psychologists would say that the perverse activities of these people have altered their brains and for which they are categorized as psychopaths, which means they lack the ability to feel remorse or guilt. The Bible simply says that their consciences are seared. The psychologists would say that there's no turning back, that these people cannot be brought back. But the Bible simply says this, that No one, no individual is ever beyond God's mercy that if God should choose to exercise it on their behalf, he could do so. And with respect to people that are doing the things that they are doing in Sodom, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that some of the people in Corinth were doing those kinds of activities, but they're not doing it anymore. And why are they not doing it anymore because God's because of God's grace he has pulled them out of that lifestyle and way of thinking and placed in them a new heart he says unto them with respect to them being abusers of themselves with mankind he says and such were past tense and such were some of you but now you are clean so no one is beyond the mercy of god here we have Abraham praying for the righteous, and so I ask myself, I wonder what was going through his mind, knowing what he does know about God, knowing what's going on down there in Sodom and this coast roundabout, and knowing that Lot is down there. I wonder how that process started in his mind. What is he going to pray for? Who is he going to pray for? And how is he going to pray? And I think we all struggle with this. What would you pray if you were Abraham? What would you do? What would you think of in this case? you petitioning the Lord, you know what's going on down there, you know how the people are, the Canaanites, how the people are in the land. How would you pray? Would you ignore God's righteousness and pray for everyone down there that God would overlook their sins and leave things alone? that God would save everyone from the wrath to come. And I think if you'll admit it, that's a lazy prayer. and I've been guilty of it. I just wanted to save every, everybody, but that is a lazy prayer because it makes no effort to see things from God's perspective. In Job chapter 4, verse 17, Eliphaz asks Job the question, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? In other words are we going to, would we pardon everyone? God's not going to do it, but would we do that thinking ourselves more righteous than God, more just than him? The truth is, we do not know how to pray as we ought to pray. But God does know. He knows how we ought to pray, and so he helps us with that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, we talk it teaches us that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and helps us to pray. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, our deacon read this morning from Jeremiah chapter 11, where God very clearly tells Jeremiah not to pray for the people because he intends to destroy them. That seems like something that might be a little surprising, but again, known uh, from the foundation of the world are God's, all God's works that he is going to do. So as we move forward here, who does Abraham pray for? Well, I'm going to tell you that he prays for his nephew, Lot. In verse 23, again, he says, "'Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked?' All through this, verses 23, 24, 25, and 28, he is praying for the sake of the righteous. All the way down to verse 30, by inference, again, it's all about praying for the righteous. Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Will you not spare the city for the benefit of the righteous? There is no mention of any of the other cities that God is going to destroy, just the one that Lot lives in. That he prays for Lot, we know from Genesis chapter 19. In verse 29 of Genesis 19, we read, And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities, plural, of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities, plural, in the which Lot dwelt. Lot, we know, had started out when he was separated from Abraham, started out north of the Dead Sea and worked his way down the west coast of the Dead Sea all the way through those cities and then eventually ended up in Sodom. Abraham doesn't specifically mention Lot as the object of his petitions to the Lord so we can appreciate the spirit intercedes for him and tells us that Lot was on his heart. Because he tells us that in verse 29 of Genesis 19. God remembered Lot, excuse me, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the mist. So clearly Lot was the object of his petitions. Now seeing how things play out here and knowing God, we can appreciate that the judge of all the earth will indeed do right and will not destroy the righteous with the wicked when he renders judgment on the last day. When we look at Abraham's petitions here, we see that he makes six petitions, which is the number of man. So I ask myself, why didn't he make seven petitions? He starts with asking the Lord to spare Sodom for the sake of 50 righteous people. And then in verse 32, he leaves off with 10. Why not make one more petition and take it all the way down to one righteous person? Peradventure, there be found one righteous person. Since he was on a roll, why not take it all the way down to one? For Lot's sake, don't destroy Sodom. Now, ultimately, it comes down to that in the world. For one man's sake, the God man Jesus Christ, God does not destroy this planet. For the one man's sake and everybody that's in Christ, he does not destroy it. For his sake and all those in Christ, God endures with much long suffering the vessels of wrath. Fitted for destruction. God is not willing that any of his people should perish, but that all his people should come to repentance, and they will in God's time. But here we see that God is willing that other people should perish, though he takes no pleasure in it. He is not willing that Abraham's nephew Lot should perish. So what we see before us here is not Abraham conforming God to his will, but rather God conforming Abraham to his will. And that's the benefit of prayer. Our will is conformed to the will of God's. How many times does the Lord say, not my will, but thy will be done. Our Father who art in heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about conforming us to God's will. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, the Lord sets this before us. 1 John five fourteen and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. Whereas God responded to every one of Abraham's petitions, we know that God heard him. And therefore, he asked according to God's will. And having done so, Abraham had the petitions he desired of God. God would not and did not destroy the righteous for the wicked's sake, though there was only one righteous. As a matter of fact, had God not removed that one righteous from the city, he would not have destroyed it at all. In Genesis 19, we see that when Lot is taken out of the city, he negotiates with the remaining angel, which I would tell you is Christ, saying that he can't flee to the mountains, but would rather go to another city. And what does um, God say? In verse 22 of Genesis 19, he says, Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou come thither. In other words, I can't destroy Sodom until you are out of it. So for one person's sake, he would not have destroyed that city. But Abraham, who should have made the seventh petition, didn't make the seventh petition because it was not God's will that he did so. The interceding spirit did not put it on his heart to make that seventh petition. But again, what it does help us is appreciate that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Who would have thought that the Lord would condescend to go down into that pit And pull Lot out like a firebrand plucked out of the fire. Who would have thought that our great shepherd, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, that he would leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Think about this. He left the ninety and nine. How old was Abraham? Ninety and nine years old and went down to rescue Lot. The Lord, obviously, when he's sharing that with us, is making reference to that type of behavior of our good shepherd. He left the ninety and nine and went down to find that which is lost. Having found that sheep that had gone astray, Lot is literally pulled out of the city. In addition to Lot, again, exceedingly abundantly above what we might think or ask, in addition to Lot, the Lord removes his wife, and his two daughters, offering also to save those betrothed to his daughters and all that pertained to Lot in the city. He' had taken it all, He would have taken out everything associated with Lot. Um, but Abraham didn't ask for that, but God offered to do it anyway. God would indeed do exceedingly abundantly more than Abraham asked. Abraham, I think, he knows that he has the petitions of the Lord that he desires. And so rather than stand the night upon the hill overlooking Sodom to see what the Lord might do, which is what Jonah did over Nineveh, Abraham returns to to his place. He knows that the Lord will not destroy Sodom if there are but ten righteous there. He knows that the Lord will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He knows that the um, judge of all the earth will do right, and indeed he ever does. He who is judge of all the earth does that which is right. Amen. Amen.